Church. My name is Jennifer, and we will now be reading today's passage from 2 Samuel chapter 11, 1 through 5, and uh, 26 through chapter 12, verse 7. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she said, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very had men, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. sorry, had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, well, good morning to you again. Uh, my name is Eugene. I'm a member of the pastoral staff here. I have the privilege of giving uh, the message for this morning. Uh, we're continuing on in our series entitled uh, A History of Redemption, and we're basically taking a look of how the Old Testament and its heroes and its figures are pointing to Jesus. And we come to probably the most promising character in this line of, uh, of would-be messiahs, of people that are uh, foreshadowing Christ, and it is the king. It, it is King David. Now, in this passage, it's 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 pretty fascinating to me that in uh, the climax of David's story, what is highlighted is not his successes, it is not his victories, but it is his utter moral failure. Uh, Bill Clinton has an autobiography called My Life, and in it, uh, you know, chronicles his life, and obviously he wrote it. There's a little bit of PR spin. Uh, the chapter on Monica Lewinsky is very short, and it's also, oh, I, it wasn't me, like Shaggy, like it, it was all her, right? Donald Trump paid money to make sure that no one knew about his moral failures. And yet, in this story, we have the most promising figure in this line of redemption, and the author chooses not to hide uh, the failure of David, but to highlight it, to almost say, this is the point of this story, which begs the question, 
Why is David's greatest failure highlighted so heavily in this passage? Uh, I use this quote a lot, but I think this is helpful, and it's, it's pretty much uh, the general direction of, of the text today. Mike Cosper was a writer and a thinker, uh, a Christian thinker and writer. He writes this, and it'll be up above me. Just as we're tempted to flatten Noah, Moses, or David into two-dimensional stories of heroes, we also want to tell simple stories about ourselves. And it's easier to grasp that we're either sinners or saints than it is to acknowledge that we're a mix of both. What King David is showing us in this passage is this truth that any of us can fall and we will fall. And at the same time, God's love leaves room for our redemption. So uh, today what I want to do is almost just a character study of David's life in this time. And there's two things happening. There is a huge red light warning. This could be you. And in the second half of his life of David, as he confesses with Nathan, it also says, this is also you. This is you redeemed as you repent before the Lord. But first is this. Uh, David shows us that any of us can fall. You have to realize David is the best of us. Um, in the Old Testament, he's the only character where God says, this is a man after my own heart. Uh, God truly beloved David. He is someone special to him, not because of just what he is, but his own character, his own seeking of God. It's, he's the best of us, and yet he still falls, which shows us we all have the potential to do the same. I don't know if you're familiar with the story or not, but I'll, give, uh, I'll color in some of the, the parts of the passage we did not read. Um, David, if you notice in the beginning... Uh, it says, in the time in spring when kings usually go out to battle, David stays back. He stays back and he sees Bathsheba bathing. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He looks and he says, wow, she is very beautiful. Who is she? The, the person that comes to him tells him, hey, King David, this is the daughter of one of your fighters. This is the husband of one of your best friends. It's a huge warning sign. But David still says, send her to me. And now there's a lot, this could be held another sermon. But what's implied is that David forcibly takes Bathsheba to be his own. Takes him, takes her, conceives a love child. And because of this, he's terrified. Because he knows if the word gets out that he committed adultery with his best friend's wife, that his reign is over. So his conniving mind, he sends Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, back from battle to home. And he basically says, hey, go home, wash your feet. What he's saying is, hey, go home, sleep with your wife so that, you know, everyone knows it's your baby, it's not mine. And yet what's interesting, and we didn't read this, Uriah is the only righteous person in this passage where he says, no, I'm not going to because my soldiers are fighting and I don't deserve this type of rest. So he sleeps not in his home but with his servants. And, and David gets so desperate, he gets Uriah drunk. And even in his drunken state, he is more righteous than the sober king of Israel. He says in his drunken state, I will still sleep with my servants because I don't deserve any rest while my soldiers are fighting. And you have to notice Uriah is a Hittite. He's a foreigner. And, and, and the passage is trying to play with that, that a foreigner, that Jews were so, you know, xenophobic, that a foreigner is the most, most righteous person in this passage. And what happens then is David says, well, in a Game of Thrones mindset, I'm going to send you by yourself into battle to make sure that you die. So he murders his best friend. 
you read that passage and you're like, man, that guy needs therapy, right? He, and you know what? David probably does. And, and often when you read these stories of failure, there, there is a room of like, uh, there is some room you want to leave. Like, oh, that, that's disgusting. We get so uh, disgusted because we want to say that would never be us. But it could be any of us. The point of this passage is showing us we can all fall. We always hear these stories on the news of moral failures. You know, just recently, I heard, uh, I don't know if you guys know this um, story, but in the San Jose Police Department, the union chief for 10 years is supplying the opioid pandemic in the whole country, right? And you read that, you're like, that could never be me. What King David is saying is like, no, that could be you. To be a human being is the potential to fall and willingness, the, the direction to fall. And what David is showing us is this. What are the warning signs for us to fall? So the first half of the sermon I want to do this. I want to peel back how is it that David got to this point of murdering his best friend to cover up the love child that he slept with her, uh, her, his wife with? How does he get to that point? Well, there's a couple layers that I think warn us first. The first is this. The road to any failure is, is marked by a thousand pebbles. The road to any failure, to any massive sin, to any sudden huge fall is built by thousands and thousands of pebbles. There's a show on HBO called Chernobyl, which you ha if you haven't watched, I would really advise you to do so, although it's a bit disturbing. But it basically, as accurately as possible, uh, depicts what happens in the Chernobyl nuclear reactor in 1986 when basically it blew up. It blew up, the, the lid blew off, and all this radiation is just leaking into the sky. And it, it could have been disastrous for the world. And it's a story of how they um, basically repaired it. But also in the story is, how did it get to this point? Because this is the, the whole point of the show is showing us, and what it shows you at the end is, it, this didn't just happen. This wasn't one day a scientist like fell asleep, pressed the wrong button, and be like, oh my gosh, I blew up the reactor. No, there were these thousands of shortcuts of little, little mistakes of things they wanted to cover up that led to this huge disaster. And when I watched that, and I was preparing this passage, I was like, what a fitting analogy to our own spiritual life. For your nuclear reactor in your life to blow up, it doesn't happen overnight. No one committing adultery wakes up and be like, oh my gosh, who is this woman? Who is this man in my bed? No, that, that decision started 10 years ago with small decisions being layered on top of each other over and over and over again. The first lesson and the first layer, the first warning that we have from David is this. this is the decisions you make right now, the small ones, the ones you pick. Like, what are you watching on your phone? Like, if I opened your TikTok algorithm, like, and, and I honestly took it without you telling me, what would it show me? The small DMs you're, you're sending to friends behind other friends' back, although it seems harmless, all of these decisions that we're making are leading you into one direction or another. To be a human being is this. It's a culmination of our small decisions that lead to the larger decisions in our life. And what David is showing us is this. He took a thousand small, socially acceptable detours that finally allowed him to drive off a cliff in his life in this story. David, throughout his reign, although he is a man after God's own heart, and God is making sure that everyone knows that, one thing you see in his life, he always takes multiple wives. And a lot of people look at this and be like how, how, you know, like, how could the Old Testament allow this? And you have to be careful. The Old Testament is showing this is what happens when you take multiple wives. 
In Deuteronomy 17, 17, uh, God instructs the kings and the future leaders of Israel, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And you know, in these these moments that David takes multiple wives, it's almost in the context acceptable. It's like, oh, I conquered a a city, I should take this wife. Oh, they, they don't have a husband, I should take this wife. But all these small decisions that are acceptable, these small pebbles lead to ultimately him taking Bathsheba at the cost of his own friend's life. I'll illustrate this even practically in my own life, and I think for us it's important. We have to be so aware of the small, minuscule decisions that we're making on a second-to-second basis because they are forming who you are. The person you want to become a decade later doesn't happen in your mind. It happens in the small habits and actions. Even in my own life, I have a son named Eli. He's almost five. Um, when I was being raised by my dad, one thing I told myself was this. I, I don't want to fall into the same traps and weaknesses that our parents have. And all of us would probably uh, test true to that. But the, the hardest thing is you can't parent any way other than you've been taught, if that makes sense. And one thing, uh, you know, and, and if you're, you know, Korean or Asian American, you might relate to this. One thing that my dad would do, he'd be very stoic. And the only emotion he would show me is disappointment or anger when I would mess up. Right, and I told myself, I'm never going to do that. But I catch myself now all the time doing that with my son, that I'm raising my voice in frustration, that I lash out, although I shouldn't be overreactive to something. And when I look back, it's never the moment. It's never, oh, I lost my temper. You don't ever lose your temper. Your temper is lost throughout the day when I have a fight with my wife and I don't resolve it. Right? When the warriors lose and I get so pissed off and I take it out on my son. When I have a bunch of emails that I know that I'm procrastinating on and the stress is building up, I take it out of my son. All these small decisions lead to a failure of me becoming a loving father. In your own life, what's happening with the small decisions that you're making? The road to failure is paved by thousands of pebbles. That's the first layer, the first warning that we have. But the second is this. David also, as he builds these small little pebbles that lead him to drive off the cliff, the biggest mistake he makes in this passage is he always tries to contain the consequences of his sin. He tries to do damage control. The failure of David in this passage is not one particular event. It's not him seeing Bathsheba, and it's not him taking Bathsheba. It's not him conceiving a child. It's not even him trying to get Uriah to sleep with uh, Bathsheba to cover up his sins. It's also, it's, the biggest failure is this. He's always trying to cover up his consequences, the consequences of his actions. Uh, the warning that David gives us is this. When you place your own brand or your own appearance over your own character, it's a road to utter destruction. All of us do this. We're terrified of the consequences of our mistakes and our sins. But the failure that we often make, the deeper failure is this. When we try and cover them up, we repeat ourselves to dig a deeper and deeper hole. You know, in, in, in the, the TV show Chernobyl at the end, Uh, there's a trial where basically the scientist, the main character of the whole show, comes towards the tribunal and he kind of reports what happens and he finally, out of courage, says, we did this to ourselves as a nation because we were so concerned about our own brand that we're this glorious Soviet Union, that our nuclear reactors are better than the Americans, that we took shortcuts, that we didn't want to face the consequences that we were not ahead of the Americans. And there's one thing he says that has always stuck with me. 
He says at the end, and his name is Valery Legezov, and he says this, when the truth offends, we lie and lie until we can never remember it is there. It's still there. But the truth is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid out. The more you try and hide your consequences, the more you're piling up the habitual sins that will ultimately destroy you, your family, your friendships, your vocation. And this is the, this is the thing. The consequences of our sins, I, I wish God could take them away. Because God, if he's all-powerful, he can do that. But the problem is, if you commit adultery and you have a love child, God's not going to magically send that child away. When you gossip with a friend, and although you may be truly repentant and, and, and ask for forgiveness, they have no obligation to forgive you. That's a consequence of your sin. But why is that? Why can't God just be like, you know, I, I, you know, I messed up. Can God just change the heart of my wife and, and ask her really to forgive me? Why do I need to live with the consequences of my sin? And I want to be careful here. The consequences of your sin, they don't define who you are, but they definitely warn you of what you can become. The reason God leaves us with the consequences of our sins is not out of spite, but for our own good. When you place your brand and your character, or your brand and your appearance over your character, you're blind to the warnings of what you can become. So this is, the, this is the hard truth that David is showing us. When you face the consequences of your mistakes and actions and sins, rather than covering up, the, the true way to try and get yourself not to fall even more is to live with them, to look at them and say, they don't define me, but what do they warn me of what I can become? The road to failure is listed, is, is paved by pebbles. We have to contain our consequences. But the last layer that David shows us is this. Power will always blind the heart. Power will always blind the heart. You see, when we mix all of this, when we make these small decisions, when we're more concerned about covering up the consequences of our sin rather than dealing with the sin itself, what ultimately happens is we want to worship power so much, status so much, it blinds us to send us into deeper and deeper sins. You know, a key verb throughout this passage is the verb sent. Uh, David sends Joab into battle and not himself. David sends after Bathsheba to come to him. David sends after Uriah to come to him and say, hey, try and sleep with your wife so I don't need to deal with the consequences. There's this level of power David has. And that, that word, that verb sent, it demonstrates authority over people. And what the, the author is showing you is this. David is using his power throughout this passage not to serve his people, as the king, not to serve the God that he loves as his beloved, but only to serve himself. There's this wicked relationship with power. And, you know, we all know this. Power corrupts. Absolute power absolutely corrupts. We all know this. And we all look at, you know, figures in history or political figures or people on the news and they, oh, it's the power, it's the money. They're so wicked. But we're doing the same thing. Yes, we might not have the scale of power compared to them, but whatever power you do have, when you grasp onto it too tightly, it blinds you to lead you to fall even further. When we, when we become addicted to power and status of who we are through our achievements, 
what happens is this. We become blind to a lot of things. First, we become blind to all the warning signs in our life. You know, one thing that, that, uh, that strikes me is when David sees Bathsheba naked, you know, bathing, and, and the text is clear, she's purifying herself. It's a cultural practice. There's nothing wrong Bathsheba is doing. There's no wrong she is doing. And when David sees her, he sends, like, his servant be like, yo, who, who's that girl? And that, and that servant's like, uh, that is the daughter of one of your beloved friends and also the wife of one of your best friends. It's a huge warning sign, right? But he's like, no, I want that. I want that. Why? The power blinds him to the identity of who Bathsheba is. And even when Uriah, in his own righteousness, refuses David's commands to try and cover up his sins, that should have been a warning sign from God. Why is Uriah not sleeping with his wife, although he has been gone in from war for so long? That should have been a warning sign. God is trying to tell you something, but yet power blinds him. Power blinds him to his warning signs. And this is what happened. When you worship and, and grasp onto power, you start to have self-pity. You start to say, like, you know what? I, I deserve this. It's, it's been so hard for me grinding in my work, dealing with my family. It's been so hard for me doing this and that. I deserve this. I need this. And as your self-pity grows, you become blind to the people you hurt. All sin, all sin hurts someone other than yourself. And the reason you commit that action is because you become blinded to that person. When you commit adultery, you become blinded to the spouse that you had a covenant with. When you gossip about someone behind their back, you're, you're blind to that person not actually being there. When you stir up hatred and anger towards someone, you become blind to the person that they actually are and all their brokenness and all their uh, wholeness. And this is what happens ultimately. Our, our, the, the, the lust for power David has blinds him for his own need for God. When you read 2 Samuel, David is someone that's always communicating with God. He's always in relational intimacy with God. Everywhere up until chapter 11, it's David seeking after God's own heart. But the first time, the first time God, uh, David shuts up to God is beginning in chapter 11. There is no mention at all of God or of the Lord in David's heart or in the story. Why? Power had become so you know, primary to him that he no longer needed the same person who put him in power. And this is the thing. Just as David's life is a caution of how we can fall, just as David is blinded to the power, uh, is blinded by power, all of a sudden the narrative changes. Although he's blinded by God, Nathan comes in and wakes him up and says, this is what you've done. And all of a sudden something happens. The story changes the story of David is not just a caution of how we can fall and will fall and how we should avoid it, but it's also a story and a beacon of hope of this. When you do fall, this is what awaits you when you repent before the Lord. You see, just as we see a, a king who is sinning, we also see a king who is repenting. And what does he do? What does true repentance look like? You know, if I sat you down, I don't know how many of you guys have been in church for a while, but if I sat you down, I'd be like, what does it look like to repent? Often the answer will be a mixture of like, oh, it's a monopoly, get out of jail, free card. Just like, let me say a prayer, and I'm good. But when you read the story of David, and, and, and this is the thing, I, I wish I could spend more time in this. David in the Psalms, he, he writes a lot of the Psalms. Psalm 51, the Psalm is uh, entitled, 
the repentance after Bathsheba. It's his own prayer of repentance. And when you read that prayer of repentance, you see what repentance truly is. It's a pathway to joy. At the end of that psalm, David is not frustrated at himself. He's not frustrated at God, but he's, he's praising who God is. It's repentance. When you truly do it, it's a pathway to deep joy. How do we do it? Well, just as there were warning signs of how we fall, David also gives us three pathways to truly repent. The first is this. For us to truly repent, it needs to be a communal project. It needs to be a communal project. You cannot repent by yourself because, and I, I'm taking this out of self-experience, you are too self-centered to do so. You never admit that you're sinning while you're sinning. You know what I'm talking about? I, I've never heard of a story where, you know, maybe in an affair when that's actually happening and the act of the affair is happening. I never hear a story of either person being like, oh, we got to stop. No, it's always after the action is completed that all the guilt comes in. And when you're left by yourself, you want to cover it up. But this is the thing, you know, God knows that. And what God gives uh, David is a communal way out. He gives him Nathan. God knew David needed an outside voice. What does that mean for us? We need radical friendships, radical community to speak truth into our life. Because on our own, we'll always continue to fall and fall and fall. Proverbs 27 writes this in verse 5 and 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We need a friend who can wound us, who can speak to us, who can show us our blind spots. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend at the church. Maybe it's a long-lasting you know, community that you've had, but you need a Nathan or Nathans in your life. And, and, and really quick, if someone, this is more of a side note, if someone really wants to be Nathan in your life, that's probably a sign, uh, I, I don't need you, right? Uh, this isn't an invitation to allow anyone to criticize you. You know, if there's someone that's overly critical of you, they're probably more of a nuisance than a Nathan, okay? Because look at how Nathan does this. Um, in chapter 12, Nathan comes and gives David a parable. And a lot of commentators are like, what does this parable mean? Who is the sheep? Who is a traveler? And in my mind, it's like, you know why David told that story? I mean, Nathan told that story with two reasons. One, he didn't want to die. If Nathan came to the king and was like, I know what you did, right? You saw Bathsheba, his head would be cut off immediately. But second, he knew, Nathan knew in this, in this culture of honor and shame, no one responds well to direct shame. No one responds well to like, hey, you know, if you grab coffee with someone and the first thing they say is like, hey, I want to talk about your problems. I'm like, I'm out, man. Peace. You got you to, gotta, you know, like kind of warm up to that. What Nathan does is so profoundly loving. He tells a story. Now, what's the story mean? I don't know. I, I think Nathan was just like, let me just, let me just slowly, creatively get away to get David's attention. So this is the thing. You know, as, as we're called to have Nathans, we're also called to be Nathans. In our lives, this isn't an invitation just to be like, hey, you suck, right? Let me tell you why. No, be loving and creative in how you do that. Repentance is a communal project. We need community to truly repent of our sin. But second is this. David shows us that it's not just a communal project, but repentance in David's case is a true holistic repentance. It's heart and mind. It's heart and mind. This is what I mean. There are many times in our life when we know we're wrong, when we know we messed up, but our heart's like, I don't want to admit it. 
I do not want to admit it. There are also times when your heart is like, man, I really messed this person up. But logically, that doesn't make sense, right? You know how I know this? My marriage, all the time. There are times when, you know, yeah, I, I won't share that story. But there are times when my wife comes to me and is like, I, you did something and I'm grieved. And in my heart, I'm like, wow, I really hurt you. But in my mind, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. I go to my friends, like, hey, you know, I feel bad. I hurt my wife, but this doesn't make sense. They're like, that doesn't make sense. And I go back to her, I'm like, hey, I, I feel for you in my heart, but let me tell you my mind, doesn't make sense. And makes the situation even worse. What David does is he lets go of his pride. And this is the thing, for a lot of us, when we repent before God or our friends or our people, it's always one or the other. It's, it's our mind kind of, but not our heart. It's our heart, but not the mind. But David comes radically with both mind and heart, holistically. And in Psalm 51, there's a, I wish we could spend more time, but in verse 4, this is what David writes. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The first thing is this. Uh, David repents with his mind. He says this. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil, not in my opinion, not in the world's opinion, in your sight. In, in, in the words of your covenant and the law. Uh, there are times, and I'm speaking, this is mainly to those who believe in Christ. If, you're, if you come here and you're a skeptic or wonder, this isn't for you. But the, for those who profess their faith in Christ, let me say this. There are, there are sins that are really easy to confess. One thing I always hear as a pastor, uh, you know, hey, highs and lows, how are you doing? There, one easy sin all of us confess to in Silicon Valley if you're a Christian Oh, man, you know, one sin, I'm working too hard, you know. I'm leaving my family behind. I need to confess of that. That is, that is, that is such, like, self-pity, right? Because what you're saying is, like, oh, let me, let, me, let me repent of my hard work, right? And, and this is the thing. I'm not saying that's a bad repentance, but that's an easy repentance. What God is after is, are there sins that are not even socially acceptable that you should repent of? that you can lead to your people and to God himself. Whether it be your sexual ethics, whether it be your money, whether it be what you're watching at night. There are so many things that are easy to confess, but what David says is, I'm not gonna confess based on my own understanding, based on the culture's understanding of sin, but your understanding of sin, Lord. I'm confessing with my mind fully. This is the thing. It's very easy as a Christian, when, especially living in the Silicon Valley, to blend in with what are acceptable and unacceptable sins by society's standards. Whether it's sex inside or outside, or sex outside of marriage, whether it's how you deal with your finances, whether it's what you're watching on your phone at night, whatever it may be, can you confess fully with the scope, not of the culture, not of yourself, but of scripture and of God? It's, he's, he's conf again, holistic mindset, it's, it's with his mind, but also it's with his heart. Note this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Note, David does not try and justify his sin. Rather, he takes full responsibility, a full stop. No ifs, no ands, no buts. One thing I always do when I repent, and, I'm, and I think I'm truly repenting, I repent with context, right? So with me and my wife, I'm like, you know what? I'm sorry I made a decision, but let me, let me tell you why. It's because you came at me like that. 
and because you came at me like that, that's why I came out with you that, but I'm sorry. What I'm basically saying is, look, I, I'm sorry, but it's your fault. And what happens is she comes to me and says, oh, you know what, I accept that apology, but that apology hurt me, you know? And let me tell you why. And it's just this spiral that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. All of us do this. We repent and we ask for forgiveness with caveats, with, with conjectures. You know, I'm sorry, but let me tell you the context of why I gossiped. I'm sorry, but let me tell you why I was watching this at night. You know, because our sex life is horrible. Or because you wronged me in this way. David does not do that. David could have easily said, against you and you only have I sinned, although Bathsheba was naked and, you know, you know but, but I still for, you know, ask for forgiveness. He doesn't say that. He owns up full responsibility. There are no ifs, ands, and buts. He says, it's no matter what the context was, no matter what the context Whoa, apologies. So for us, can we repent holistically? Can we repent communally? And this is the last thing I want to speak about repentance. Um, in that passage, David says, against you, you only have I sinned. And when you think about that, you're like, whoa, wait a second, David. You killed your best friend. And you probably raped Bathsheba. Like, there are other people you sinned against. Why are you only focusing on God? And that's all true. But the reason is this. David is repenting not of the consequences of his sin, but repenting the true nature of his sin. Let me explain it this way, and this will be a little layered. If you focus only on the consequences and you repent of that, and we all know this. We all know, you know, what, what, especially with affairs, and let me speak with uh, a little bit of carefulness with this too. Uh, anyone caught in an affair, usually the repentance comes after it gets found out, when a divorce is just on the table. And it's hard to know, are you repenting because of what happened or because you got caught, right? We all know this. I know this too, I do this all the time. In seventh grade, one of the ha most heinous sins I committed, I cheated on a chemistry test. You have to understand, my parents were like, you know, get good grades and don't cheat. That was, those are like the two laws of my household. But I remember, you guys remember the Sony Ericsson? I don't know if it's like an old phone. It's one of the first phones with the camera. And I took a picture of the periodic table and I laid it on my lap. And then, you know, the quiz was, do you know the periodic table? And I was like, oh, yes, I do. And I just put it all. And I remember I was so shook because it was like the first time I like committed a sin. Like, oh, my, what's God going to do? But it's okay, God, forgive me, right? I'm already doing what King David did. And, and I left my phone on the table just out of my shookness. I'm in my next period of class. And I'm like, I'm, I'm about to text my friends. I aced the test. I'm like, where's my phone? I was like, oh, my gosh, I left it. And I was like, oh, it's, it's all good. I must have, I must have pressed lock. I was like, no, God was sovereign. I did not. And the teacher had found my phone with the whole periodic table on the pictures. I'm like, hello. Uh, I forgot his name because he gave me a lot of trauma. But like, whatever your teacher's name was, can I have my phone back? He said, oh, you can have your phone back. I just called your parents and told them everything you did. It was a consequence. I came home, and the first thing I did was I got the stick that my mom used to hit me. And I raised it up. I said, mom, <laughs> I've sinned against you and you only, right? What am I doing? Uh, in that moment, I knew what I was doing. If I didn't get caught, I would not have repented of that. I'm repenting of the consequence. If I didn't get caught, I would have been like, Mom, look at my report card. Against you and you only, I have brought you honor, right? I was repenting only of the consequences of my sin. And when you repent of the consequences of your sin, what that is is just tactical self-pity. It's not true repentance. David here is not focusing on the consequences. 
He's not focusing on anything, but rather what he says, the truth of my sin is not what happened to me, but is that I grieved God against you and you only have I sinned. What David is saying is this, before I cheated on Bathsheba, I cheated on you, Lord, because you were the one that delivered this kingship to me. You were the one that gave me this throne and against you, and you always proved your love to me. You've always proved your power to me. And even amidst all that, I cheated on you to look at Bathsheba, to kill Uriah, to run away from you. Let me tell you a word of hope. If you just beat yourself up with the fear of consequences, that will not change you. You have to get, why are you so afraid of the consequences of your mistakes? Ask yourself that. Why are you so terrified of the consequences of your sins becoming public? Because in the end of the day, when we fall, that's the main thing we worry about, right, if we're honest with ourselves. Why is that? Because what that consequence is telling you if it gets public is, I am unacceptable, I am unwanted, and I am unlovable if people find out what happened. That's what you're really afraid of. You're not afraid of your consequences. You're afraid of what the consequences will tell you to other people. And what David realizes is this, with God, I have someone that loves me. You know, in, in, in Psalm 51, this, this won't be on the screen, but this just came to me too. Uh, when, when David confesses in verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according not to your law, not according to, you know, your strict, uh, you know, wh- what you demand of me, according to your steadfast love. What drives David to true repentance is not fear of his consequences, but the everlasting love God delivers, even in the midst of his failures to David. And the question that remains is this, how can we access this love today? I'll end with this. It's through the line of David that we get Jesus. That should, that should shock you. Uh, this is a whole other sermon, but the first child that David and Bathsheba conceived, Nathan tells David, this child will die from your consequences. That's, your, that's the actions that you committed. This is the consequence. So that child dies, and David and Bathsheba have another child named Solomon. And even his reign to the kingship is, is crazy, but it's through the line of Solomon. It's through the line of an adulterous, murdering affair that Jesus is born. Like, you think Jon Snow line, lineage is crazy? Think about Jesus' lineage. The, the whole series we went through, this is, this is Jesus' great-great-great-grandfather. A dude who slept with his best friend's wife and killed him, and with his son, Jesus is born. What is that telling us? You know, in this culture we live in, there's this, there's this deep lust for atonement. Like cancel culture, you know what I'm talking about? When a celebrity, Jonathan Majors, for example, like I don't even know what happened. And I, you know, I don't want to speak to whether it's true or not, but the first instant, instinct that we had was cancel him. And he was. He was canceled. And I don't know what happened. There's reports that maybe he's, that didn't happen. But the whole point is this. I'm not trying to undermine victims here. But what I'm saying is this. Our lust for atonement as a culture goes deep because we do not know what forgiveness looks like. Elizabeth Brunig writes this, there's something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. Because this is the thing, you read David's story and you're like, how can David be forgiven that quickly? How am I supposed to forgive others so quickly? Or maybe it's like, how can I even find forgiveness for myself? This, This sounds great, but how can this be true? 
It's through the line of David in the, you know, the grand, grand, great, great, great grandson of Solomon that Jesus comes. And in, in Jesus' life, what does he do? Ephesians 2, Paul writes this, and we just read this today uh, in our time of confession. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Now the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work at, in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Look, cancel culture is right. When people commit heinous sins, there should be there should be action. There should be judgment. But what Jesus tells you is this. You're right. It should be almost scandalous that David's forgiven this easily. It should be scandalous that anyone can be forgiven this easily. Whoever you're, you know, maybe it's Donald Trump in your mind. Maybe it's, you know, a Democratic politician. I don't know. Who, whoever you hold in your mind with so much disdain, God is telling them, I can forgive them instantly. And the reason is this. Jesus gave his own life for that. It's the love of God that can change you. The love displayed on the cross. It wasn't an easy cost. The love of Christ can fill any, empty, any emptiness that causes our failures. So in return, like King David, let us come in repentance to freely receive the grace Christ gives us. Let's pray.